Hi, I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Welcome to my show, America Can We Talk. Today, we're going to talk about Seth Rich Rises Again, the Coronavirus and Truth in Numbers, Coronavirus Reaction, Science or Plot, and Hair Salons and Civil Disobedience. And I'll tell you why these stories matter to you. Stay tuned. Debbie Georgiatis, host of America Can We Talk, is an author, attorney, and political analyst whose mission is to inspire the American political conversation about preserving liberty in the best country on earth. Hi, welcome back to America Can We Talk and to today's first five. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. This segment, Seth Rich Rises Again, is really the most amazing unfolding story in Washington. And I want to give a little bit of background just to remind you in case if you're thinking that name, Seth Rich sounds familiar. Who is that? Back in 2016, during the election cycle, Seth Rich was a young man who worked at the DNC, the Democrat National Committee. He happened to be a, a supporter of Bernie Sanders. And at that time, of course, the primary is still ongoing. Seth Rich was murdered, most unfortunately, very sadly, in June of 2016, very you know, early morning, late night, early morning. He was shot in the back in a neighborhood where he, he lived. And the um, investigation, the police looked into it and they ended up calling it a robbery gone bad, even though nothing was stolen. He saw his watch, his wallet, everything intact. And he was shot in the back. And... You know, the police just called it unfortunate and, and let it go. But many people were very, very suspicious about that. And then, tied in, happening at the same time, you may recall at that time in, in 2016, that there were emails that were somehow being obtained from inside the DNC server, the Democrat National Committee server, and uh, the Clinton campaign server. And those emails have been given to Julian Assange, who runs WikiLeaks. So Julian Assange running WikiLeaks put these emails out and they came out. There was just a, a just an, a, an avalanche of them one after the next for weeks and weeks. And essentially they helped America see how completely creepy Hillary Clinton is. Uh, the point of today's story is not the details, what was in the WikiLeaks emails, but they made the DNC look really bad. And the DNC then complained about it, of course. I mean, it made Hillary look terrible and uh, just creepy, it's really bad. And uh, the DNC, instead of turning their servers over to the FBI, who still to this day has never been able to examine the DNC servers, the DNC permitted an organization called CrowdStrike, a private organization connected to Hillary to do this cyber investigation uh, to look into their computers and figure out how did all these emails get out of the DNC, you know, super secret server and into the hands of Julian Assange and WikiLeaks and out to the world. CrowdStrike announced that they had discovered that this was a hack by the Russians, that this was a hack into the server, you know, obviously making Hillary look bad. So therefore, um, you know, probably they were alluding to probably somehow connected to Trump or at least connected to Russia. So all of what we were treated to in the entire Trump-Russia collusion hoax, everything that happened inside the DNC and happened inside Washington and the investigation of the FBI, the DOJ, a lot of it centered around or sprang out of this argument that the Russians had hacked the Democrat National Committee's server. But many actual investigators actually um, 
people skilled and talented looked at the information publicly available and I'm not a DNC I'm, I'm not a you know computer sleuth but experts looked at it and said no this information could not have been removed from the DNC servers by a remote hack because of the speed of the download the information the emails that came out of the servers had to have been taken by someone who is inside the DNC taken and loaded onto flash drives or some other instant way of downloading things rather than a hack. And in 2016, a Fox reporter woman uh, went to, she, uh, her brother had represented Julian Assange and had, uh, she had met with him while he was holed up in the, in London in a, in the, um, I think it was the Bolivian embassy. And she said afterwards on national television that Julian Assange told her that the emails he got from the DNC did not come from the Russians, did not come from the Russians. He affirmatively said, she said, Julian Assange said he did not get the emails from the Russians. So he's right there putting the kibosh on the whole idea that the Russians uh, somehow hacked into the DNC server. Following up from that, this same reporter contacted uh, a gentleman who lives here in Dallas, Ed Butowski, who's a longtime friend of hers, and she told him, her name was, I'm trying to get her name quickly, I think it was Ellen Ratner, but whatever her name was, uh, the, yeah, yeah, Ratner anyway. She told um, uh, Ed Butowski, who's been on this show many times, or twice, she told Ed Butowski that what Julian Assange had actually said to her was that the emails came to him from this young man, Seth Rich, and his brother Aaron. So Assange is identifying he knows where he got those emails that he put out on WikiLeaks. They didn't come from the Russians hacking. They come, came from inside the DNC, Seth Rich, and that Seth Rich and his brother have been responsible for downloading those and sharing them with WikiLeaks. One possible motive attributed to Seth Rich doing this to his own employer may have been because he supported Bernie Sanders and didn't like watching inside the DNC all the support being tossed by the DNC manipulatively behind the scenes to Hillary Clinton to bring about her defeat of Bernie Sanders in the primary. So Ratner has already said on live television, so you can, and we play the clip before, that Assange told her that the emails didn't come from the, um, from the Russians, they came from inside the DNC. And then Butowski says, yeah, she told me they came from Seth Rich. So fast forwarding. So first of all, it's important to understand how consequential that is when you think about the fact that it is often pointed to as one of the, you know, everyone knows the Russians tried to hack or, or tried to sway the 2016 election. Look what they did. They hacked inside the DNC server. They put stuff out there that made Hillary look bad. So therefore that must prove that the, um, the Russians wanted Trump to win, that they were on Trump's side. They were trying to hurt Hillary. Recent discovery um, will remind you is that the, in fact, documents now out and available and being discussed are that the actual fact is John Brennan, head of CIA, was squashing, squelching the, uh, the information they were gathering in 2016, were tell which were telling him the Russians were not on Trump's side. If anything, their intelligence was steering them to the understanding the Russians wanted Hillary to win, which is what I've always said. But back to the Seth Rich story and what's happening now. So Seth Rich, you know, that's become just an unsolved case and the police just toss it up to a, you know, who knew, I guess it was just a, a robbery gone bad, even though nothing was stolen. 
So here we are today. We've been talking about how the uh, House Intelligence Committee, uh, that these documents were released uh, finally after um, being held back for so long uh, that the there's it's now evident that despite what the what Washington has said, what the media has tried to say, what the DNC has tried to say, that there actually was investigation, some level of investigation in Washington about whether or not Seth Rich was really the one. Seth Rich, who was murdered, was really the one who got the emails off the DNC server via a flash drive or something and gave them to WikiLeaks. And of course, much speculation, if that is true, if Seth Rich was the one taking these emails, then, you know, it, it makes it raise all sorts of questions and who murdered him, who and whose interest, what did his death, whose interest did his death serve? Because he was a Bernie Sanders supporter, not a Hillary supporter. He's giving away information, making Hillary look bad. You know, your head could go a lot of directions. But what's happening today is there's a lawyer based in New York, Ty Clevenger, and he represents Ed Butowski. Ed Butowski, the Dallas person who's been on this show a couple times. And Butowski is the one who, when Ellen Ratner told him that Assange had told her it was it came from Seth Rich and Aaron Rich, that Butowski, based on the specific instruction given to him by Ratner, he says Ellen Ratner told him that Julian Assange wanted Seth Rich's parents to know once he'd been murdered, wanted them to know what happened. Julian Assange is saying, I got these emails from Seth Rich and now he's been murdered. I think his parents ought to know that I got the emails from him. So Butowski goes, he tells Seth Rich's parents, you know, the, that this, this, what Julian Assange is saying, Seth Rich's parents being diehard Democrats, uh, hate all Republican type people, uh, don't want to accept this. They don't want to have uh, the idea of their son, his memory tarred in any way by supposedly having been doing this to the DNC. So they're not on board with the story, but they, but Butowski, what Ratner told them to do, went and, and had that conversation with uh, Seth Rich's parents. So lots of litigation flying around among a variety of people irrelevant to this story. But what I want to get you today is this. So now Ty Clevenger, the lawyer for Butowski, has sent in an, an email, sent to me a regular letter. You can read it online, you can read it at my website, americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links. You can read all the stories I'm talking about. But Ty Clevenger has sent in a letter today, now on, on May 7th, to uh, Richard Grinnell, who is the interim director of the, the in, director of the Na of national intelligence DNI. So Grinnell is the interim DNI director. Clevenger is saying to him, "Look, guy, I want the information that you may have in your possession related to the whole Seth Rich case and the, specifically the investigation." that actually did happen, despite the effort of everyone in Washington trying to say, there was no investigation, we didn't have to look into Seth Rich, that that poor young man was murdered in a random street crime. You know, it had nothing to do with anything related to the, the campaign and his work at the DNC. So here's what Clevenger is now saying uh, to Grinnell. He's saying, number one, I represent Ed Butowski, he's my client, uh, and, and he lists all the cases involved. There's a bunch of litigation going on, and he says, in this case, um, he said, first of all, Julian Assange strongly inferred Mr. Rich rather than Russian hackers were responsible for the emails being released. And he said, and this is now Clevenger, what he's telling DNI Grinnell, I am reliably informed that the NSA or its partners intercepted at least some of the communications 
between Mr. Rich and WikiLeaks. So it would be evidence, you understand, if, if Seth Rich is the one grabbing the emails and he's sending them to WikiLeaks, there'd be some electronic record. And that's what he's getting at. I'm reliably informed that the NSA or its partners intercepted at least some of the communications between Mr. Rich and WikiLeaks. Before elaborating on that, however, I want to first note the extent to which the deep state has already tried to cover up information about Seth Rich. In October 2018, in an affidavit uh, submitted in a Freedom of Information Act lawsuit, FBI Section Chief David Hardy testified, number one, FBI did not, um, FBI did not, uh, sorry, did, did not investigate any matters relating to Mr. Rich. So you have the FBI Section Chief saying that the FBI never investigated anything related to Mr. Rich, and number two, FBI unable to locate any records about Mr. Rich and this guy, Ty Clevenger, in his note to DNI Cornell saying that was a lie. Now we all know the FBI guy lied. The section chief, David Hardy, lied. He says last September, Judicial Watch, September 2019, Judicial Watch inadvertently obtained records about Mr. Rich by requesting communications between FBI lawyer Lisa Page and supervisory agent Peter Strzok. And he says the header in a heavily redacted email string shows the name Seth Rich. And in one email, Agent Struck boasts about having squashed something pertaining to Mr. Rich. So now you have the FBI who's lied through their teeth about get, going after Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, lied through their teeth, making up stuff, concocted the whole Trump-Russia collusion. Now he, Clevenger, is pointing out that even documents that were obtained with respect to other lit, other litigation is pointing out the FBI did indeed inv investigate Seth Rich. In fact, this struck guy is bragging that they squashed something pertaining to him. And then he also says, he, Clevenger, is saying in March of this year, he deposed Assistant U.S. Attorney Deborah Sines, who was the prosecutor assigned to the Seth Rich murder case. She testified the FBI investigated a possible intrusion into Mr. Rich's electronic accounts. The FBI examined Mr. Rich's computer. The FBI did have records pertaining to Mr. Rich. So, folks, this is, uh, you know, it's an, an amazing thing. I'm, I always talk about in the show, you got to keep persisting. You keep pursuing the truth. What Clevenger is doing now on behalf of his client, you know, Butowski, because Butowski was accused of lying, making up this stuff that, you know, when he went and gave his the information from Julian that went from Julian Assange to Ellen Ratner to Butowski, and then he went and talked to Seth Rich's parents, he's been accused of lying. He's been he's been just really his life and kind of raked over the coals all because he relayed the message at the behest of his friend, Ellen Ratner. I meant to look up the dates I've had him on this show, but at one time he was on this show, he gave, he, Ed Butowski, gave a very detailed account of the entire interaction uh, with uh, Ellen Ratner and then with Seth Rich's parents. But this is a huge, huge story uh, going to continue because I think, again, the FBI thinking they can just bury and hide things not working out well as the tide is turning against the FBI and the entire Trump-Russia collusion hoax. And that, my friends, is today's first five. I also want to talk about today the coronavirus truth in numbers. You know, we continue in this country in states at various stages of shutdown, aren't allowed to leave your house, only essential stores open, only essential things you're allowed to buy when you're in certain stores. 
businesses can't open, you know, the economy has collapsed, unemployment numbers. In fact, I had a guest on last week on the show, I think it was Chip Roy, but one of the guests was talking about the idea that we lost more jobs. We lost more jobs in the past eight weeks, meaning unemployment filed, than we gained in the entire upsurge, entire improvement of our economy, not just under President Trump, but even if you count before President Trump and the economy, a little bit turning around, we've lost that many jobs in eight weeks. And so I want to give you some, and it's all the threat of the coronavirus. I know we've been on this show many times talking about the, the uh, in fact, I urge you, if you haven't read about it, to be sure and read about it and understand what the left did when they, when what the Washington DC establishment did when they got really bad numbers out of London, out of a doctor named Neil Ferguson in London, another source actually in America, uh, University of Washington source also gave very bad information to Washington. And so they had death projections, you know, lethality projections, infection rate projections, projections related to the number of ICU beds needed, hospital units, all sorts of things, grotesquely exaggerated, grotesquely exaggerated. And so we jumped in, this is now in early March, we jumped into a, an emergency state unseen in American history to respond to the coronavirus because of really bad data and really bad models. I want to share a bunch of data with now you in just a moment to inspire you to think this is, we are still reacting to the bad data. We're still taking action, keeping our economy shut down based on bad data. We didn't, it's like the one analogy I used in some speech I gave was the idea that if you took a patient's temperature and their temperature you thought was 109 degrees, you would drop everything you're doing. You would turn all of your medical attention to do everything conceivable to revive that patient, to bring down the fever, to you know, to make sure that they, they survive because it's very dangerous to have a fever that high. But the moment you realize that the thermometer was broken and the person's temperature was really only 99, you would drop the emergency reaction because you have better facts. The person's temperature is only 99. In the same way, in this country, we are still in emergency response mode based on bad data that's now long proven to be inaccurate. I'm gonna start, there's one little clip, or, or uh, I saw even in our clip, it's a graph to show you. I sent to Matt, the wonderful producer, um, who has just been, I wanna thank him, is extraordinary, doing these shows from home, so helpful, so on top of things. I wanna ask Matt to show you this particular um, picture. Okay, that is a map of the United States of America. You can see, up in the New England area, a tiny little area that is red in the New England area, New York obviously included. So what this map is showing you is dividing the number of coronavirus deaths in this country by geography. So that tiny little red area in New York and surrounding areas, one third of all the coronavirus deaths in this country happened in that red area. The, the yellow area only slightly larger around it. You see the yellow area only slightly larger around the red. One third of all coronavirus deaths happened in that yellow area. So one third in the red, one third in the yellow. The entire United States, the whole rest of the country includes, as you can see, Alaska and Hawaii at the bottom, entire U.S. mainland. The remaining one third of all coronavirus deaths happened in that area. 
My point is, we had a drastic and horrific problem in a very tiny portion of America, and yet nearly the entire country remained shut down. So that's the first bit of data I want to share with you. Mountains of data today, but really simple things to follow, all to make the point we do not have to continue under this economy-crushing, uh, free market-crushing, leftist-empowering shutdown because the data do not justify it. So here we go. I want uh, these, and I also want to be sure and tell you some more about Wuhan in a moment. But I first want to tell you that the CDC is now acknowledging that U.S. COVID-19 deaths peaked in mid-April. We are now in early May. So we're on the downside. U.S. COVID-19 deaths peaked in mid-April. It's also true in America. The data that you just have to understand, half of all deaths in America, half of all coronavirus deaths happened in just five states. New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, and Michigan. The majority of those have occurred, the vast majority, even those occurred in New York State. The CDC has acknowledged, Center for Disease Control has acknowledged, 90% of all virus hospitalizations are of people who had serious pre-existing conditions. It's not striking down healthy people. I'm not saying that there's not a healthy person in America who is not most unfortunately contracted and even succumbed to COVID-19. But the crisis nature of what, the, what we are doing is not justified by the facts on the ground. 86% as an example of Illinois' 3,000 plus deaths were in ages over 60. You can just, I mean, I can go on and on and on with data, but to make the point that we have people who are threatened by the virus because of age or pre-existing conditions. We have the vast majority of Americans who are not threatened, but everyone's life is being shut down. Everyone's life is being shut down. I also wanna make a point about numbers in this segment related to coronavirus. There was a great piece comparing the state of Georgia with the state of California. Now, yes, and the, the, the piece I'm referring you to, and you can read at my website, americacanbetalk.org, on the homepage under shows, drop down list of links. In Georgia, the governor there, Governor Kemp, decided that in the third, the final third of April, essentially, that he was going to open up the state. It's been open 20 days. And so he's opened up the state, and, and they're keeping track of what they're doing. They're, they're doing all sorts of careful opening, contrasted with California, that is continuing massive lockdown. California is still in massive lockdown. Everything's closed, you can't leave. I mean, they've opened some beaches, but then they are closing them again if people get too close to each other. But I wanna tell you, and again, this data matter because it helps you realize that policy in this country is not being driven by science, is not being driven by data. In the gray state of Georgia, as they have pursued their opening of the state since April, they now have the lowest number of COVID-19 patients hospitalized in the whole state based on, compare with when they started this whole effort. Um, so they have the lowest number of COVID-19 patients hospitalized, lowest number of ventilators in use, under 1,000, the whole state of Georgia, 11,000 people tested in the last 11 days, testing available for, um, available is, excuse me, 110,000 people were tested in the last 11 days, testing is available for everyone, and they have a declining percentage of Georgians testing positive. So they're in the downward trend in all good ways. Contrasted with California, 
continues as lockdown, continues as lockdown, and they are trending up. They're one of the few states where the numbers are even worse than the projections that were originally made. Shutting people in place is not preventing the virus, is not preventing the virus from spreading. California shuts them in place. Virus is worse than the predictions. And the other thing, just to mention to you, I think you probably saw or read about this, but in the state of New York, they have recently announced that two-thirds of the new people newly admitted to the hospital, two-thirds of their new coronavirus patients, COVID-19 patients admitted to the hospital, came to them from lockdown. They're not, they're coming from places and from people who are on lockdown. So they're not, so the lockdown is not preventing people from contrasting the virus. These are really, really, really important points to understand. Also, in addition, in the, um, in the data we talked about originally that came out of England, and you had Neil Ferguson of, the, of Imperial College, who has now, I uh, announced last week, but in case you missed the show that day, Neil Ferguson is the one who originally created this monstrosity of a model projecting basic massive death, massive infection rates, horrible outcomes, all from the coronavirus. He projected those and they were by orders of magnitude wrong. They were the numbers that now doctors Fauci and Burks have admitted they had in their heads, they had in their hands when they went into President Trump and told him that unless he locked down a country, we'd have between 1.5 and 2.2 million deaths that's the number they were relying on. Neil Ferguson now, having put these horrific projections out all over the world, all these countries panicked in reaction to it, did shut down. Neil Ferguson had to resign from Imperial College recently before violating the curfew, excuse me, violating the quarantine that was put in place because of his models. And he violated that quarantine because he was sneaking off to meet with his married lover. So leaving that aside, other actual experts have now done a deep dive into what Neil Ferguson came up with. And I'll just share you share with you, there were quite a few just uh, pretty, um, pretty damning uh, comments made by actual experts who looked at the what he'd done and their expressions were, and looking at the code he used, you know, the kind of the model for the model, the code he used was deeply riddled with bugs, huge blocks of code, bad practice, quite possibly the worst production code I've ever seen. That was all related to numbers. We do need to care about our fellow neighbors and friends. We do need to have protection of the vulnerable. We do need to protect, we need to make sure the hospitals have what they need to care for patients and doctors do. We have to be careful to protect and help people, but we do not have to continue a shutdown that is destroying the American economy, much to the glee and joy of the left but is also not necessary in response to the actual virus numbers. I want to tell you two more things in this segment before I turn to my next segment about um, the reaction, science or a plot. But you know, all of this 
kind of came to America's attention in January and people in America were became aware that they had a big problem in Wuhan, in, in China. And in Wuhan, they had this outbreak and they had, um, you know, this concern about did the virus come from the wet markets? Did it come from the bioweapons lab? And, you know, both people who have either opinion, there are, there are very uh, arrogant people who have uh, a view in both opinions and, and mock the other side for not agreeing with whatever they say. Whatever it came from, and we will get to the bottom as Americans, we also now know that because they monitor so much about China, thank goodness we monitor so much about China, we now have a report obtained by the London-based NBC News Verification Unit that there was a cell phone, because they, they, they monitor and access cell phone da usage data, there was no cell phone activity at all in a high security portion of the Wuhan Institute of Virology from October 7th to October 24th. 17 days, no cell phone activity. It was a blip on their screen because it was inconsistent with its usual. And so they're assuming there was a hazardous event apparently in the Wuhan lab as early as October. We also had information uh, from the German intelligence that basically picked up a call between the head of the World Health Organization, who, WHO, and the Chinese president, Xi Jinping, where Xi Jinping is asking who to hold back information about the coronavirus, about person-to-person -person transmission, and to delay a pandemic warning. So we have all sorts of bad information, bad actors in China, and here we are in America, uh, we're still on shutdown. But I really wanted to turn to and talk about though, is that in this, I, I guess in the next segment, I wanna talk about the coronavirus reaction. Is it science or a plot? I will tell you, I do a media thing sometimes, and, and I did an interview today, another one tomorrow, that people have been saying that, I mean, not the virus itself, but America's reaction to the virus is political. It's being used by leftists in this country. And there are, of course, many people who roll their eyes and say, that's ridiculous. You know, it's a virus, what else can we do? Of course, we have to take charge. We have, we have to protect ourselves. But I wanna to explain to you why people are saying that and why I think it's valid. Now that you have new data, all the new data we have, now that you realize we don't have a national pandemic, we had hotspots of problems and not a national pandemic. Why is it that is mostly the blue states pushing to hold people in their homes, to continue the shutdown that wasn't justified by the numbers we have, to keep people, to keep the economy flat, to keep businesses from opening? It is a leftist effort for the most part to keep states shut down, to keep people in their homes. The benefit to the left is that this reaction to the coronavirus has destroyed the economy created by President Trump and, and basically the, the economy created through President Trump's embrace of free market, American-style freedom, capitalist efforts to make America strong again by making America free again, making America capitalist again, making Amer helping America work again. This is what happened under three years of Trump. All of that's been destroyed in eight weeks. And if you don't think that there are leftists in this country who see the damage that this is doing to the economy and to the mindset of the American people, then you don't understand how Democrats think. 
this is advantageous to them. Advantageous to be able to say in the fall that all that President Trump built up was, you know, it was just a farce. It was a house of cards. Of course it collapsed. Look at where we are now. There is an effort on the Democrat side to stall the reopening of America because it benefits them politically in attacking President Trump. And more so, all of the restoration of the belief in America as a free market economy, as a free country, all of that is being destroyed by the crushing, the collapsing of the economy built under President Trump. So I want to make, um, I mentioned the last segment, but I want to mention it again. Governor Cuomo is shocked to hear that 66% of new hospitalizations appear in New York to be among people who were sheltering in place. So sheltering in place isn't work working. You now have doctors. You had the ones we played the video before YouTube took it down, but it's still up. You can find it. There's a link on my website of doctors, Massahi and um, Erickson, who were in California, Kern County, California. They're laying out for with full of data saying, Wearing masks is not wise. Wearing, wearing masks doesn't do anything. You don't want people. You want people to develop the antibodies. You got to get out, live your life, come in contact as normal life involves with vi various viruses. This is how the immune system works. It comes in contact with viruses and develops antibodies. Wearing masks is, to the extent they do anything, they prevent the normal strong immune system from doing what it's supposed to do. So masks aren't working, keeping people sheltered in place is not working as they're discovering in New York. And Dr. Katz of Yale, about whom we've spoken other times, he was the one that came out originally and said that we're doing it all wrong. We ought to be going with vertical interdiction, which all he's saying was protect the susceptible, protect the sick, protect the vulnerable, let the healthy people work and live normally. So he was saying we should have done vertical interdiction. This is Dr. Cass of Yale, not horizontal interdiction, which is what we did do, which is shut down America. He's also making the point, social distancing is ridiculous. Social distancing is the, um, I've forgotten the word he used, but the idea of it was social distancing is snake oil. It, there's no point to be doing it. If, if masks aren't necessary because we don't, we want to be, getting a normal healthy immune system to deal with the virus same with social distancing but the left is behind this idea of keeping america shut down they benefit from, from america's weak economy it, it helps them in their attack on president trump this fall i want to mention to you i had a piece on uh, american thinker uh which is called how to get past the great mistake i i don't have time to go into the detail of it today i'm probably gonna do another show this week but it was talking about the idea that what we've been talking about just now. Accepting bad data was a great mistake. Going to the great shutdown based on the great mistake was, was the next problem. It was a great shutdown and we need to fight back against it because the great shutdown is shutting down civil liberties, shutting down freedom. That's what's happening. Leads me to my last quick segment for the day, uh, which relates to actually a case here in Dallas, Texas. Uh, other things like this are happening around the country. But I want to talk about the idea about this hair salon owner in Texas named Shelly Luther, who was arrested for keeping her salon open during the coronavirus shutdown, which continues, or I guess now they've opened, they're slowly opening things in Texas. Texas is not really behaving, frankly, as well as a red state should behave in this. It's very slow, very plodding, very fearful, slow reopening, not what you'd expect out of the great state of Texas. 
But I want to say that the woman who was arrested, Shelley Luther, for keeping her, her um, salon open, she wasn't hiding it. She wasn't lying about it. She just said, I have to work. My employees need their income. They've got to pay their bills. I've got to pay my bills. I want to open. I want to assert the idea of civil disobedience and remind you that concept of civil disobedience. For some reason, I really recall the discussion in law school about civil disobedience. But the idea of civil disobedience in a nutshell is that if you think there's a law that's unjust, you know, you can try to change it. You can go to the legislature, you can lobby, but sometimes the way you fight it is by violating it and then taking the consequences or the basic, basic first principle is that you definitely think you maintain respect for the overall rule of law. You're not overthrowing the government, but you're disobeying a specific law that you perceive as unjust. The second principle is you plead guilty to the violation of the law. You acknowledge that you did it. And so this is what Shelley Luther, if you know the story of Shelley Luther, she ultimately got, she kept her salon open. They finally had a, you know, she had several uh, notices from our local county government uh, saying she had to shut down. She's saying, no, this is not right. I'm, I, I'm morally opposed to the law shutting down my salon. And she ended up being called in front of a left-wing judge who was very scolding and demeaning toward her and told her she had to apologize um, and, or else he was going to exercise his right to send her off to jail. And she said, I'm not apologizing for feeding my children. She was polite. She didn't call a name. She didn't mock him. He said, apologize for being selfish and for um, endangering your fellow citizens or something. She just said, no, I'm not apologizing for feeding my children. So she followed the tenets of civil disobedience, which are you respect the rule of law otherwise, you, but you disobey the law you're calling out. You're trying to call attention to an unjust law and you accept, you plead guilty to the violation of law. And then you attempt in your effort to uh, fight this bad law, you attempt to convert your opponent to demonstrate why what you did is just. She followed those ideas of civil disobedience. It is the same thing. It's not the same order of magnitude, but it's the same thing. If you think about Rosa Parks, the precious American woman, black woman, who back in December of 1955 in segregated uh, South decided she wasn't going to sit in the back of the bus in Montgomery, Alabama. That's another example of civil disobedience. She did not violate every law. She did not declare she wasn't going to follow any laws. She said the law that says I have to sit in the back of the bus is segregation, is discrimination, is bigotry. I won't do it. She sat in the seat she wanted to sit in and got arrested and agreed she pled guilty. And she became, of course, an icon leading America eventually away from the idea of segregation as they were practicing in the South. Now, I know people that the wrong law that you saw Rosa Parks protesting was far more evil, far more impactful to a vast number of Americans because black Americans in the South, not just Alabama, a bunch of other places did not have equal rights and she was right to oppose it. It brought attention to the country to, for many people outside the South who didn't live in segregation to how evil it was. So she engaged in civil disobedience. She broke the law. She accepted responsibility and she used her case to try to draw attention and change the minds of people who put those laws into place. She obviously were not single-handedly. We had the civil rights era. We had Martin Luther King and many other great Americans and finally got ourselves to get rid of those laws. But it's the same thing that Shelley Luther is doing in Dallas. 
shutting down her salon, shutting down all sorts of businesses, randomly, arbitrarily, even in the great state of Texas, randomly and arbitrarily letting some businesses be open, but not other businesses be open, is another example of an unjust law. And that is what Shelley Luther was protesting. And I'll close this show by saying this about that. The danger to America of this shutdown is not just that we had people lost jobs and people lost small businesses. They had to close them forever. They couldn't afford to keep them up. People lost their homes. People lost everything. But that's not even the worst damage flowing from this shutdown, unjustified by science, unjustified by the numbers. The worst damage done to our country is that we have begun to accept the idea that we surrender our liberty when the government tells us we should be frightened, when the government says to keep you safe from some virus or any virus, to keep you safe, we're going to force you to stay in your home. We're not, we're going to tell you you'll be arrested if you go out. If you open your business, you'll be in trouble. This is what we had happen in this country. We surrendered liberty. We're being told we have to surrender our liberty in order for the government to keep us safe. The government cannot be making laws about keeping you safe in this kind of context, because if they can, if we say, sure, anytime government, you think there's a threat, you just tell us how long we have to ha remain in house arrest in our homes, how long we have to have our businesses closed, how long the economy can be destroyed, and you're gonna let us know when, again, it's safe to go out. We have surrendered liberty. That is the worst outcome of this coronavirus. I'm sorry for every single death. Of course, the loss of life is horrific. My heart goes out to everybody. I, I do know of people who have lost friends in the coronavirus, um, this horrible epidemic in America. I do know that people, they do, it is lethal and it is painful and it's been a strain in our, on our system and it's been hurting American people. But that does not mean that we simply surrender our liberty because the government tells us this is how to keep you safe. Just stay home. We'll let you know when you can leave. The law itself, and as again, it's not just this, this time, this virus, this shutdown. It is losing the presumption of liberty and it, it is investing in or agreeing to the idea that government can shut America down anytime it wants and you have no recourse. And they can shut you down based on bad data, bad science, bad information, on policies that aren't working. And they can keep the shutdown in place and there's nothing you can do about it. Shelley Luther, the owner of that salon, stood up as a, in, in, a, in an honest way, challenging via civil disobedience, the idea that the government can just keep you shut down and you have no recourse. She was standing up for, and the larger, when you start to recognize how much the left is benefiting from this shutdown, they are salivating the idea of the, all the ads they can run this fall, blaming Trump for every single aspect of the shutdown, every single aspect of America's reaction, looking at a devastated economy and because they think it gives them power, it gives them the ability and the likelihood to win the presidency this fall. That is an unjust motive for much of what the left continues to do. We'll have to talk about this more other days in the show. I'm sadly out of time, but I want to tell you folks, I love talking to you every Monday through Thursday, 3 p.m. Central Time. Love having this opportunity to share with you these just important, important 
uh, stories and and uh, ways to think about arguments to think about the way that the stories impact the future of liberty in America, the way the stories impact our ability to preserve America if we stand up and speak up for preserving this country. And now I'd like to share with you at the very end, as I always do, why the stories we talked about today matter to you. So we start with Seth Rich rises again. The pivotal assumption of the Russia collusion hoax was the DNC hacked by the Russians. FBI never verified the hacking, relied on CrowdStrike, a private cybersecurity firm, recently released transcripts of the House Intelligence Committee, questioning of CrowdStrike CEO. CrowdStrike had no direct evidence. Russians had exfiltrated the emails. You gotta get that point. Even CrowdStrike did not have any information we now know that proved that the Russians did it. Simply, it's simply astonishing. WikiLeaks' Julian Assange has publicly implied he got the DNC emails from, Senate, from Seth Rich of the DNC, attorney Ty Clevenger representing Ed Butowski in defamation cases relating to the Seth Rich murder investigation, has disclosed his letter to the, um, <clears throat> the acting DNI director, Rick Grinnell, stating that WikiLeaks' Rich emails are in possession of the DNI and demands their release. Such emails potentially prove there was never a Russia hack of the DNC explosive dimension of coup plotting new array of co-conspirators. On the coronavirus and truth in numbers, why it matters to you, original predictive model from Imperial College in London now exposed is based on primitive coding so flawed as to be practically fraudulent. Half of US coronavirus deaths happen in five states. CDC says 90% of those hospitalized in the US have other underlying complicating conditions. CDC says deaths peaked in mid-April. Early opening in Georgia has since validated by low numbers of new cases, ICI usage and events comparing with California still on lockdown and their numbers are worse. America's fear level is, beyond, is based on erroneous projections. Actual data say the fear level is unjustified, too high. The science says it's time to reopen. And on the coronavirus reaction, science or plot, Evidence of infections in October 2019. Evidence of Wuhan lab shut down in October 2019. When did the pandemic really start? Effect on lethality rate is to radically diminish. Blue states that are extending lockdowns are not following science. Multiple credentialed medical experts say masks are not appropriate. Social distancing is accomplishing nothing that is ameliorative. Americans are waking up. The lockdown is not about science or public health. It's about the left using political power to hurt the economy in order to hurt Trump. And finally, on our hair salon friend and civil disobedience, Shelley Luther is the Rosa Parks of this era. Racial discrimination is wrong and barred by the Constitution. Government control of individual freedom to work is wrong and barred by the Constitution. America is long past the point of pandemic emergency. Continued lockdown is indefensible and violates the Bill of Rights. This is the right and moral foundation for civil disobedience on a national scale. Will patriots step up? And that, my very fine friends, is America Can We Talk for today. Thank you for listening so very much. You can email me at americacanwetalk at gmail.com. On social media, you know what to do. Do all the things to help this show grow on social media. Go to my website, americacanwetalk.org. Click on subscribe. You get a once a week email from me. Links to all the show elements, interviews, and articles that we write. And that list is never shared or sold. 
to anyone. It is just for use on my show. And again, in closing, thank you so very much for listening to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I'll talk to you next time. Can we talk truth about America? Can you-